Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Zephaniah chapter 2, starting at verse 4. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation, Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, which, with which they have taunted my people and, became, and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Surely Moab will be like Sodom, and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their pride, because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth, And all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst, all beasts which which range in herds. Both the pelicans and the hedgehog will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the window, desolation will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. This is the exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. So the prophet Zephaniah was raised up by God during the reign of King Josiah, prior to Josiah finding that book of the law in the temple, and prior to Josiah starting the, the large scale reformation of the nation. Up to this point, In the book, the focus of the warning has been on the nation of Judah, on the people of God, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is long gone. But the the warnings up to this point have been on Judah. God has announced that there is a coming day when his burning anger would come upon them. But sprinkled throughout this first part, the first part that we uh, didn't read, and uh, preached on in the previous weeks, there, there are signs that the judgment of God 
was not simply local but worldwide and uh, covering the whole earth. The very opening of the prophecy says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And the next verse, I will cut off man from the face of the earth. And then in verse 18, we read, And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And then verse 3 of chapter 2, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So there's a sense that it's, it's not just, I mean, in prophesying, in Judah, to God's people. He's also prophesying past Judah, past God's people, into all the nations, and indeed into all the times of the nations that would, would follow. So though God's anger at Judah has been the main focus, it's clear that God's anger is not simply at Judah's sin, right? But sin in general. The sins of every man, woman, and child. The sin of every nation in particular. And when judgment breaks out in a local way, it stands as an indication of the judgment that is coming on the whole world on the great day of the Lord. Right? When Jesus returns with the sword coming from his mouth. Every death, every disaster, every war, every single calamity is a reminder that God's anger against sin is very real. It's very much alive still. Right? Every disaster, when the righteous are swept up with the wicked in a disaster, reminds us that sin is in the world and God's wrath abides on sin and on sinners. So though Judah is, is the focus of this prophecy, that does not preclude the prophet zooming back and reminding us of the universal judgment that is coming. Right. Additionally, as is common in the prophets, God addresses the sins of his people, then tells them that he will use godless nations to punish them. And then he tells those godless nations that they've got it coming after that he uses them. And that's and this is where we are in Zephaniah. that he will judge the pagan nations around you to the very nations that he would raise up to punish his people, the kingdom of Assyria, the kingdom of Babylon and so it's very easy to be short-sighted in our lives, isn't it? We have a tendency just to think about the moment, the day. It's hard even to think about the next day, right? And sometimes when, when your, your spouse asks you about the next day, you're like, would you just be quiet? I've got enough problems today. I don't want to think about tomorrow's problem, right? But it's so easy for us to constantly be short-sighted. You can imagine the people crying out to God when these godless nations come upon, upon Judah. You know, when the godless nations came into Jerusalem, you can imagine them saying, why have you forsaken us? You know, why, why is our flesh poured out like dung in the streets? Why, why are you against us, God? But the prophets have been announcing and announcing and announcing and calling for repentance and calling for repentance for, for ages now. And... You know, and so I imagine if God, if God were to punish our nation for our sins, and that thought should make you scared. No joke. That thought should make you scared. Why is God's wrath 
not coming upon this nation now. It's only because of his forbearance. But, but when it does, will we, will we think, oh, God has forsaken us? Or will we have the, the, the presence of mind to say, no, God had promised this. God had promised this to the nations who refused to serve him. So you can imagine that Judah is being short-sighted and, and crying out. And, but, but though God disciplines his people for a time, there is, there is then coming a time when he will deal even with those pagan nations he used as a tool for disciplining his people. Right? They don't get raised up and, 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 and blessed by God. They get raised up to be used as a tool to lovingly discipline his people. But then in the moment... It's very hard for the faithful to take heart and remember that God will not allow these pagan nations to get away with anything. Not even the punishment they brought by His hand in His will to His people. God will punish them for that. God will bring every act to judgment. Every act to judgment. But it's so easy for us to be short-sighted and not think about these things. Remember that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. All the nations, all the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will enter into the tribunal of God. Every evil man who seemed to only succeed in this life will suddenly be guilty. Pronounced guilty. Every evil nation that seemed to prosper will be broken down by the Lord Jesus Christ who is and who was and who will be. The most powerful empires, you know, have just come and gone very, very quickly by the will of God. And God, through the prophet Zephaniah, now addresses the nations around Israel. He addresses four nations, which symbolize the four corners of the earth. And God's universal rule, that his judgment is coming upon the four corners of the earth, that he rules over everything. The Philistines, verses 4 through 7, from the west of Judah. The Moabites and the Ammonites, verses 8 through 11, from the east. The Ethiopians, verse 12, from the south. And Assyria, verses 13 to 15, from the north. Of the prophecy against the Philistines, verse 7 stands out. Notice that after judgment against the cities of the Philistines is announced... That Judah becomes the one, Judah becomes the one who inhabits their land. Right? They come in after God has laid waste to it, and they use what was once occupied and densely populated for pasturing. No more dense population. No more cities. It's all pasture land. And that will be a blessing to God's people. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening, For the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune, it says. Notice that it is, notice too here that it is a remnant of the house of Judah. Judah will go down, Judah will undergo her own suffering, right? And many will be killed, many will be lost, but a remnant will remain. A remnant of the Lord's people will always remain on this earth at times in each of the nations, my post-millennial optimism makes me believe that the earth is the Lord's and that there will be a time when the smallest groups are pagan, not Christian. But even then, there may be a nation here or there within which there is only a remnant of believers. 
or a local persecution is going. Nations like the Philistine nation boast in their strength and brandish their weapons whenever they have a chance, but God brings them up and eventually brings them down. They will be laid waste in places that were once inhabited, thickly populated, will be so desolate as to become pasture lands. And who will pasture those lands? Judah's remnant. The faithful Israelites who, who would repent upon the discipline of the Lord, those who yield to the discipline, who do not consider themselves as wise as God or as strong as the Almighty, they, the meek, will inherit the land. Right? In fact, they will inherit the whole earth, we know, because all lands are the Lord's. The boastful, the arrogant, the reckless, the godless, they will not have a single piece of the earth when God finishes his final judgment. What they once owned will be taken away and will be given to his people. The earth is the Lord's. This picture is painted in the final words of Isaiah's prophecy. The very end of of his prophecy, it says this, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord. So your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Right? God's blessing will be upon his people and all mankind All those who have transgressed will be corpses. The whole earth, the whole earth will belong to God's children, and the wicked and their nations will have no space. This should be an encouragement to Christians not to think in the short term. Right? Short term, we might want to cry out, Why has God forgotten us? Right? We might be tempted to be short sighted and cry those things out, but. We can't be short-sighted. Every election is not the apocalypse. It is not the apocalypse for Christians. Each new senator is not a shift from God is almighty to God is not almighty. Right? Sin may flourish for a day, but God's purity and progress are never hindered. They're never destroyed. The game, though, is long-term. It's long-term. And it may seem like the church is being dashed to pieces during our generation, and so it may be, but the trajectory is clear, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. From Philistia, we move then to Moab and Ammon. Moab and Ammon, the two nations descended from Lot's incestuous daughters. Two nations that descended from his loins and were an affliction to the people of God. These two nations had taunted Judah. Jeremiah says, make him drunk, for he has become arrogant toward the Lord, so Moab will wallow in his vomit, and he also will become a laughingstock. So all through this time, Moab and the Ammonites have been mocking Judah. Moab and Ammon lived to taunt God's people. They were arrogant, they were not humble, they, they lived to hate Israel. And, and knowing their history, that makes a whole lot of sense. Right? In, in response to their taunting, God promises their utter destruction 
by bringing to mind the most thorough destruction of them all, the very paradigm of destructiveness in all of Scripture, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon, like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits in a perpetual desolation. Right? Not only is, is Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, but, but it's rendered uninhabitable. It's so destroyed, right? It's a complete destruction, and it remains desolate. Now, honestly, do you balk at the overflow, overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you balk at it? Are your sensibilities um, modern and nuanced enough that you come to that passage in Scripture and you think, wow, it's a lot of collateral damage that the Lord brought? Do you take the, your modern sensibilities um, that think sinfulness is not that bad and God's righteousness is overbearing and apply it to God's judgments, right? God's judgments are overbearing and, and we have a sense of what's fair and what's not fair and we begin to make judgments about his actions. Should Christians, I mean, here's another question. Are you willing to rejoice in God's judgments? Not just accept them, but rejoice in the judgments of God. Right? Are you willing or should Christians rejoice at the prophecy of the doom of all God's enemies? I mean, it's, it's silly to ask the question, but, but this is debated today. Right? And, and I'll, get, I'll get letters in the mail that tell, tell you I'm not being gracious enough when I talk about God's judgment. Right? like I did this week, right? Are you, should Christians rejoice at the prophecy of the doom of all of God's enemies? If we can't, then it means we have jettisoned the revealed will of God in Scripture, right? And we've determined that this is unfair and our own sensibilities are more fair and more honed, right? Because God says he's going to do this. We have to come to terms with it and bow our sensibilities to that of Scripture and not, not cut out our Bibles and cut out prophecies and cut out everything as Jefferson did with his Bible when it doesn't meet our sensibilities. If we can't accept that God and rejoice at God's judgments, then it means we have jettisoned the revealed will of God in Scripture. If we can't look forward to a time when the enemies of God are outside the gates of the New Jerusalem weeping and gnashing their teeth, undergoing torment forever, then we must start that chopping up work of our Bibles and, and then recast God as, as a debtor to us. Just recast him as somebody who owes us certain things. Right? To rejoice in God's ultimate justice, though, is to praise God as he is revealed in Scripture. It is to praise him as he has revealed himself, as he has chosen to reveal himself in Scripture. To denounce God's ultimate justice is to recast God in the image of fallen man. And to confuse, it's really to confuse fairness with justice, right? We, we, should, we should be into justice. Justice is getting bandied about, that word. But I'm talking about God's justice, and not just be talking always about what's fair and fairness. Fairness and justice are two completely different things.
But everybody today who talks about justice is just speaking of fairness because they don't have in mind God's final justice. So Moab and Ammon taunted God's people. And God would make them desolate for such wickedness. God says to them, you will no longer mock my children. I'm going to destroy you. That's a good judgment. Um, And that is to his praise and his glory. But does it fill you with both fear and gladness when God, God tells his people in Deuteronomy this? Think of this. Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. And he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. And it is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render recompense on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Now, if you're a Christian and you're like, yeah, that's great. Bring it on. And the martyrs are crying out, how long? Right? Bring it on. Bring that judgment. But then there, the other half of you is saying, He's, he, it, it seems like God's going to take, take pleasure in, in demolishing people and, and, and spilling their blood upon the ground and sending his arrows into them. And then we're kind of like, maybe we shouldn't rejoice about that. You know, maybe that's wrong. And I say to you, no, 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 you have to rejoice in both. The wicked, the day of judgment is being, is, is there for God to finally consummate all of his anger against those who have rejected his son. And if you have rejected his son, his anger will happily rest upon you. Eternally. But if you are in Jesus, you will sit back and you will eternally look upon the wrath of God as the smoke rises from hell. And you will say, Amen. So be it. God, you are good. You are always good. You are good in the punishment of the wicked. And why me? Why wasn't I in the wicked? Why, wasn't, why am I not there weeping and gnashing my teeth? It's simply because you chose me. Can we who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb look forward to God's justice raining down on all the nations? We must. If we don't, we have worshipped an idol, an idol crafted after our own perpetual victimhood mentality, We demand that God save us and then demand that he not damn anybody else. 
right? We rejoice in our salvation and then we're scandalized by his pronouncement of utter ruin for all the people and nations who reject him. We really do think God is heavy-handed when it comes to sin and sinfulness. Our inability to rejoice in the judgment of God indicates how lightly we take our own sin and how ignorant we are of the brutality of the cross of Jesus Christ. The absolute brutality of the cross of Jesus Christ. There has been no greater holocaust than that moment. The Son of God died. We refuse to sing along with King David. I mean, when was the last time you read the Psalms? How often are the psalmist and David particularly rejoicing in the destruction of his enemies? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? We think that's unbecoming of a Christian to think such a thought, even though it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down by King David, and set there to be sung in the worship of God's people. And the reason we do not allow ourselves to sing along with such a psalm is because we have halved God. We have halved God. We allow Him to love, but we do not allow Him to be just And in refusing to sing such songs and refusing to praise God for his justice, we reveal that our sensibilities are no different than those who use their victimhood to demand that the state provide them with everything. Life ain't fair, I'm owed. God owes me too. It's just sick arrogance. This time with Moab and Ammon, the remnant of God's people plunder them and again inherit. Right? They too get destroyed and the people of God get to go in and take what's good of theirs. Because of their pride and arrogance, verse 11, the Lord will be terrifying to them, it says. The Lord will be terrifying to them. The Lord will reveal himself not as we know him in Jesus Christ with, a, with, that, with that, that covenant filter, right? But he will reveal himself as the God who hates you, who hates your sin. He will reveal himself in that way to Moab and Ammon. Because of their pride and arrogance, verse 11, the Lord will be terrifying to them. They will not have the covering of Christ. They will not have anything to mitigate God's wrath. They have done wrong, and they will be repaid for their wrong. Then notice that phrase here. God promises that he will starve all the gods of the earth. God will starve all the gods of the earth. How does God starve all the gods of the earth? In in the case of the Moabites, he's going to destroy all that they offered to their false gods, right? All the crops, all the things, he'll he'll destroy that. And so in that sense, he's, he's starving them. He would quite, I mean, that's what he did with Pharaoh, right? Destroyed the land so that they could no longer offer offerings to their false gods. Um, He would quite literally make it possible impossible for them to to uh, give things to their god and to serve him but a starved body think of a starved body it ceases to function as it ought take away food and water from a man and in four days he dies generally the one true living god eventually demonstrates the functionlessness of all the false gods 
right? All the idols of the peoples in all times. There is no more cruel punishment in times of war than for prisoners to be tortured by a lack of food. We've all read the books about prison of war camps. Um, but, but why is that done? Because it renders a man impotent. No strength. Cannot rise up, cannot fight. So God would do, do with these competitors to his glory. He would do the same thing. Right? These false gods, which are no gods at all, would be unable to be served because God's destructive and jealous anger would be poured, about, poured out upon them. What idols now then, what idols does our nation serve? Am I allowed to bring this passage to uh, apply to our situation, or do I have to go redemptive historical and, and um, just apply this to uh, just go grace the rest of the passage? Am I allowed to ask that question? What idols does our nation serve? God says he will starve the idols of the nations. Is it money? Could God serve? Could God starve that God? Could he, could he starve that God in a moment? Um, the state. Is that an idol? Today, could God starve that God? Pleasure. Could God starve that God? Yes, he could, and he always will. And the righteous and the unrighteous will suffer together as he does that. And when he does so, it will be evident in the suffering of his people. He owes this and all other nations nothing. Particularly when he has already given his son to die for the sins of the world. Right? To practice idolatry now is perhaps worse than it was for the Moabites and the Ammonites. But he will starve these gods. He will starve all false gods. And through starvation will come much suffering. But it will ultimately be for his own glory. He's a jealous God. Zephaniah turns toward the Ethiopians who will be slain by God's sword. And that's all he says. They get a short rebuke. You're going to die. And then he moves on to the Assyrians. And then finally, the Assyrian Empire and her old city, Nineveh, right? The Assyrians are the United States of that time. Powerful, rich, just the, the world power. Nineveh, that exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Could be a State of the Union address. That city is going to become a desolation. God, but God, God, I mean, their arrogance in saying that they are the I am, right? God alone is the I am, the only one who can claim to be and always be. Yet here is Nineveh spewing out her arrogance saying, I am, I am. Take, taking for herself the covenant name of God and deluded into thinking it was true. God would quickly make an end to that game. It is tragic, it is not, when people and nations forget that God reigns over all nations. It is tragic when, though they have been made by him, they refuse to acknowledge him or to give him thanks. It is tragic when God sends his son to people and they reject him. Our sovereign God will happily make a ruin of any nation that refuses to serve him, and he will destroy 
any man who refuses to bow their knees to the Son of God. And in all of this, and in all of this, he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That his wrath has not broken out against me, that his wrath has not broken out against you, for your sins is proof of his slowness to anger. Isn't it? That we have breath today is proof today of his gracious kindness to us. That we as a nation continue to be prosperous though our streets are filled with the blood of the slain is God's amazing forbearance. But the day of the Lord is coming. Days of the Lord are coming before the ultimate day of the Lord comes. Right? Have you a hiding place? You have a hiding place when God's wrath breaks out. Are, you, are your gods starving and in the process starving you? Right? Will you serve the Lord? Will you bow your knees to the sun and find refuge for your soul so that even if you are swept up in the calamity of the day of the Lord, you will be saved from it. You will be saved from it, and God will welcome you into his presence, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you, you will then fully know, as the wrath of God is poured out upon the wicked, just how much your salvation really means. Just how much God the, the offering of Jesus Christ for your soul means. So if we get tired of me talking about the wrath of God, that really means that we don't, we're not getting enough of the grace of God, right? We can't understand the grace of God until we, we understand God's wrath and hatred against all sin, right? And so, and so, That is what Jesus Christ is. He's a covering from a wrathful God. He is peace. He is the working out of peace between an angry God and sinful people. And so rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. And one last thought. The, The more time I spend in this minor prophet and in others, the more I'm concerned that we we take lightly the sins of our nation, right? I mean, it's one thing for us to, the vengeance is the Lord's, that's true. Um, but, but we must tremble and fearfully pray that God's fierce judgment does not get poured out on our nation today or tomorrow. We need to intercede, we need to plead, and then we need to go down to the abortion clinic and try to get people to stop slaughtering their babies, and then we need to to call those who rule over us and say, look, this, this is wrong and God's word says and, and you, should, you should protect your people. And we should do this with trembling and fear so that our children might have a land to live in where they can gather and assemble together as easily as we did and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? It's getting impossible to be in uh, Fortune 500 businesses and be a Christian. Do you realize that? You realize that you can't um, denounce homosexuality and work in many of those corporations. And the minute you do, you'll be fired 
do you not think that that's going to be uh, spread further into further places, into government institutions, into further parts of um, uh, education, and um, suddenly there will be no place for Christians to get work, right? And I just don't want to be a subsistence farmer because I like a giant burrito every once in a while from a restaurant. This is a joke. Um, but no, God, God rules over the nations now. I'm not going to play the game with the scriptures where everything applied then and doesn't any longer apply. I'm not going to subsume all the wrath of God into, into the sacrifice of Christ when there is wrath that, that works outside the bounds of, the, of Jesus' sacrifice. Right? And that is our nations. And we should be pleading with people to turn to Jesus Christ before it's too late and pleading with people that they would plead with God that he would be merciful to our nation for the sake of our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we know you, increase our fear of you, increase our knowledge of your grace, increase our thankful hearts, increase the nights where we just read your word and weep because you've considered us your children. And Father, we thank you that we can come to this table where we remember that one sacrifice that gave us a hiding place, that has given us joy and peace in your presence. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.